Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Good to see you too. Good to see a lot of you. I'd like to start by telling this story of a young boy who grew up in West Africa, one of eight children, and let's just call him M. <clears throat> and at the age of 12, he had to make the most difficult decision of his life. He heard from friends about Jesus and the gospel and the God who loves him came, lived, died, and rose again. And he realized that Jesus was calling him to be his disciple. And he told his parents he wanted to become a disciple of Jesus. And his parents said, if you do, we will kick you out of the house. And he said to his parents, he said, Mom, Dad, I will honor you in every way, but I must become a disciple of Jesus. And so they kicked him out. And at the age of 12, he was homeless, no place to live, stay, source of food. And that could have been a tragedy. So my name is Rob. I grew up in Oregon. And... uh, uh, when I was in my, let's say I was 20, I was invited to France uh, to lead a team to help plant a church in the Paris area. And that is where I met my wife, Martine, who she also led a team, but her team was from uh, French-speaking Canada, Quebec. And we were able to work together for six weeks to help plant a brand new church on the outskirts of Paris. And it was at that point that God opened my eyes to a number of things. The French-speaking world, uh, the beauty of la langue française, and also the beauty of a woman by the name of Martine. And uh, we we were married four years later. Uh, God brought us to Quebec to be involved in French-speaking church planting uh, over the last almost 20 years now. And we've seen uh, God do a lot of different things. It's been amazing. Um, and uh, just, let's see, we won't go there right, right away, but just a couple of years ago, um, while a few years ago, we had the privilege of being here in Littleton on furlough. We were with World Venture. Uh, and so we were here for a year, uh, and we were getting engaged with, with South Fellowship. And that is when I found out that I had cancer. And so while we were here, and I had the privilege of being on staff here, and went through the process of biopsies and CT scans and PET scans and then chemotherapy and all of those things. Uh, and this body here, this family here, you came around us, you loved us, uh, you brought us food, uh, you um, kept coming over when my wife wanted to be alone and all of these kinds of things. And it was awesome uh, to, to, to be part of a community that loved us that much that they would just continuously check in on us and, and see how we were doing. Uh, and um, we went through that process 
came out the other side and uh, found out that I went into remission, and we thank God for that. Uh, then we were able to move to France, uh, be involved there, and then move to Quebec. Uh, and uh, we've been back to Littleton a couple of times since then, and, and this, this place has become home for us and for our children as well. Thank you. Uh, for loving us through this. Uh, this week we'll be here for a few days and uh, I'll see my oncologist, part of the ongoing uh, checkups to find out if it's still in remission. And uh, it's a process of one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. And until Jesus says, now you get to spend time with me. So uh, that's the process we're going through. So thank you for loving us through that. A couple, a couple of things. We're living um, outside of Montreal, Quebec, Canada right now. Quebec is about the same size as Alaska, mostly French-speaking. And, and, and Quebecois French, they speak French with a really cool accent. I call it the Australia of the, the French-speaking world. Everywhere we go with our French accent, people love us. And they just want us to say something else because they, they think our accent is really cool. Uh, and so we're welcomed everywhere around the French-speaking world. But here in this province, most of the 8 million inhabitants have never heard the gospel. Uh, there's never been a gospel movement that has engaged every inhabitant of Quebec in its history, ever. But it's not over. The French-speaking world, 275 million inhabitants, some of the poorest, some of the least reached by the gospel. And because they love our accent... And the Quebecois have never colonized anybody outside of their own country. Um, when they hear us, they know we're not from France, and they love us. And so we just see that as God works and creates a movement of the gospel in Quebec, it ricochets and overflows to other parts of the French-speaking world. And, and it's a privilege to be there, and it's a privilege to work on that. And so over the, the last... A um, couple of decades, our ministry in terms of church planting, we've had the privilege of being, uh, launching church plants, uh, coaching church planters, assessing, mobilizing, all of those things. And we've had the privilege of seeing 52 different churches planted over that, that time. And what it is, is it's, it's basically Jesus transformed us. And then we have the privilege of sharing him so other people can meet him. They meet him. They're transformed. And then somebody else's and another and another. And then there's a group and they're meeting in a house and that becomes a church and that grows and, and that's a church plant. It's a pretty awesome experience. And so we're basically doing the same thing that you're doing. We're just doing it there in the French-speaking world. And you guys are doing it here in Littleton around Colorado. And we're each, we're each living out the calling that God has for us in each one of our places. And we're grateful for that. So our, our vision, it really is uh, that the gospel so uh, inundates Quebec in a comprehensible manner that every inhabitant would be engaged by it to complete the initial missionary work, that, that every single person, man, woman, and child would come into contact with the gospel, would be engaged by the gospel, so that we could say the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 15 when he said, you know, my work is, is completed. There's no place left for me there. That's our passion. That's our dream for Quebec, and to see that overflow to other parts of the world um, that are also French-speaking and beyond. So here we are at South. And we're in the middle of this series called Build a Bigger Table, which is God's passion for us to invite people to his table through our tables. 
And this morning, we're going to look in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, in the story of Zacchaeus, which is a powerful story. And we're going to see four things this morning. We're going to see that Jesus, first of all, he sees the vulnerable. Secondly, Jesus pursues the outsiders. Thirdly, Jesus honors the rejects. And fourthly, Jesus saves the lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming to this earth, living, dying, raising again to make for you a people, a family, a kingdom. And that even if we live thousands of miles away from each other, that we can be part of that same kingdom and have more in common together than anybody else on earth because we have you in common. Father, I pray that this morning you would work powerfully through your word and through your spirit and that we would, um, going from here today, be overwhelmed by your extravagant generosity toward us and then that the power of the spirit would work through us overflowing to those others in our lives, in our communities as well. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. A lot of what uh, I'm going to share this morning comes from this book by Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition by Christine Pohl. Uh, It's a great, great book on the history of hospitality throughout the church, what it is and how to practice it and what scripture teaches about it. And we need to learn Uh, more about this reality of hospitality. Henry Nouwen said this. He said, uh, if there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. Now, hospitality in the United States, in the West, there's an entire hospitality industry. We're talking about what? These big buildings you pay to go sleep in. Or you pay to go eat in. Yeah, that, that's not hospitality from a biblical perspective. Or so, so then we think about, okay, well, we, we know that. We understand that. So what is hospitality? And then we think, wait, hospitality is more when I invite my friends or my, my small group over or my neighbors over. Is that, and, and, and partly, kind of, and and inviting these people over and living out the one another's of the New Testament is essential to being a disciple of Jesus. But hospitality goes a lot further than that when we look at it in the biblical context. And we realize that because when God extended hospitality toward us, there is something pretty radical taking place that might be troubling to a lot of us this morning. And Jesus has a tendency of being troubling, doesn't he? Hospitality. It comes from two Greek, well, one, one Greek, two Greek words put together to make one Greek word, philo, xenia. The term philo is this, this term, brotherly love, Philadelphia, phileo. And then xenia is, is the stranger. It's the outsider. And in Greek, we put those two words together and that's the word translated hospitality. So hospitality literally means brotherly love for the stranger, brotherly love for the outsider. 
That's what hospitality means in the New Testament. It's the exact opposite of xenophobia. And xenophobia is fear, phobia of the stranger, fear of the outsider. And and let's be honest, if we're really, really honest, every one of us, our natural tendency is to be xenophobic. That sounds really, really bad, doesn't it? But, but in reality, if we break it down a little bit, we re- realize that if we, we were to back up 150 years here in Colorado, if we're working on a homestead somewhere, we haven't seen anybody for six weeks, and all of a sudden four people are riding up on horses, it's kind of cool to see people. We're not really sure who they are, and so how do we welcome them? Well, we probably, we're probably going to welcome them at the end of, the, end of a shotgun. <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing here? And there's a fear there, right? You have the fear of the stranger, the fear of the outsider. And, and part of that is merited. Part of that is just trying to be safe and those kinds of things. And so when Jesus talks about hospitality, loving the stranger, loving the enemy, he necessarily grates against and goes against what our natural tendencies are. And all of us, we have the same natural tendencies to be with people we understand and know and and they're like us. And Jesus pushes us in this other direction that is jarring to us. But here we are in Luke 19 and what we see in Luke 14, 15, 16 that Jesus is is preaching on and, and explaining what it means to love the outsider, to love the stranger. Who do we invite to our big feast days, to our holidays? How do we include people? These kinds of things back then. Uh, and I think, um, I think, was it Dan the one that preached on that specifically in Luke 14 and, and talked about Jesus was saying, you know, when you have these big events, who do you invite to it? And he's explaining it. But then here we are in Luke 18 and 19 and Jesus is living it out. He's living it out with a rich young ruler, and then he's living it out with this blind beggar walking into Jericho, and then he's living it out with Zacchaeus. And so we're going to read Luke 19, verses 1 to 5, to start us out. And Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. This man, Zacchaeus, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. A lot of us have the song going through our mind, right? And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, right? For I'm going to your house today. Who is Zacchaeus? Luke mentions tax collectors six times throughout his gospel, and every one of them is in a positive sense, which should be shocking to us. Because tax collectors, they were not like IRS agents. I mean, they kind of were because they gathered taxes, but it was a lot more than that. Tax collectors were seen as traitors to their country. 
and here we are on the 4th of July, right? So they were like Benedict Arnold. They, they were actively fighting or actively undermining the people around them. So Rome had come and they had brutally and violently put down um, Israel. They were occupying it with force and violence. And they wanted to squeeze out as much money and resources as they could. And so what they would do is they would hire these people who knew the local culture and language who would work there and they would extort the people for the Romans to get money and resources and things to come out of it. And, that, and so Zacchaeus was one of these people. He's working for the occupying nation to extort the people to get resources out back to Rome. Now, there are varying degrees. There are a lot of nuances. We understand that. But most people, when they would look at Zacchaeus, in their mind, they're thinking, that man is a disgusting traitor and I hate him. We can make a parallel to uh, when the Nazis invaded France and there, were, there was the Vichy regime in France that was helping the Nazis occupy and the, the underground French um, opposition that were trying to overthrow the Nazis, they hated people who were collaborating with the Nazis. That's who Zacchaeus was. And so we start to understand why people are responding so viscerally, so emotionally in that moment. We see this blind man that wanted to see Jesus. We see this short man. He's trying to see Jesus. This man who had been pushed to the outskirts of society, one of them because he was a blind beggar, the other one because he is actively involved in something that's seen as despicable. And Jesus sees them both. Because the reality is, when I, while I tend to overlook the most vulnerable around me, Jesus sees them. And it reminds me of, of another story uh, back in Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus saw. And, and I first, I was preaching in Quebec in French, one of my earlier uh, sermons in French, preaching this story. My kids still laugh at me about this because their French is perfect because they grew up there. And I was preaching this story about Jesus seeing and, and what happened is, is that Jesus, he, he'd been feeding the people, he'd been teaching the people, and then he receives the news that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been executed, had been murdered by the state. And so I, I'm telling people this, and I said that Jesus receives the, the news that his cousin had been beheaded. And so what was Jesus' response? I mean, he, he didn't just die, he was beheaded. Jesus is, is overcome with grief. And so he wants to, to run away to a, to a desolate place and be alone and just grieve the fact that his cousin had just died, that his cousin had just been beheaded. And then all of a sudden, everyone started laughing. And, and I keep going, well, his cousin had been beheaded. And this is a really intense time. And, and the people in the congregation where I was preaching 
they, they, they just started laughing. They're snickering. They're whispering with each other. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, they can't be quiet. They're like really morbid people. Like, ha you're beheaded. I mean, think, in my mind, I'm not, I'm missing something here. Well, later on, um, somebody explained to me, well, Rob, you didn't pronounce the word right. Because the word for, 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 for beheaded is, is, is decapite. But you said decapote. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> decapite is the word for beheaded. And decapote is the word for a convertible. So I had, and I had said, so his cousin, he heard the news, his cousin had been convertible, which is, is kind of true. <laughs> Everyone's laughing at me. But even when Jesus was overcome with grief and the people followed him into this desolate place, so he couldn't get away, he couldn't be alone to grieve, and, and, and they came and, and, and surrounded him, he didn't look at them the way I would and be irritated and say, get away, let me grieve for a while. It's my cousin. No, no, he looked at them, he saw them, and he had compassion. And this is the God that we serve. This is the Jesus that sees you. He sees you. So who are the most vulnerable? The most vulnerable, uh, in Christine Paul, she says this, the most vulnerable strangers, they're detached from family or community or church, work and polity. And this condition is most clearly seen in the state of homeless people and refugees. So when we talk about hospitality and the love for the other, the stranger, we're talking about people who are on the outskirts. They're on the outside. They're these people who are detached. They don't have all of the resources, all of the, the connections and, and those kinds of things. And, and, and we're talking about outsiders and immigrants and refugees and widows and orphans and single mothers and families of prisoners and ex-cons and the mentally ill and the elderly. And, and, and these are the vulnerable. Let's reread verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus had climbed a tree like a kid. That was not the dignified thing to do. He was like, I got to see Jesus. I don't care about dignity. I'm just going to get up somewhere. I got to see this guy. And what did Jesus say about having to become like a child? That is exactly what Zacchaeus did. He threw away his dignity so that he could see Jesus. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He knows his name. He knows his sheep 
by name, and Jesus knows your name. And in naming Zacchaeus, when he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, Jesus was bestowing honor on Zacchaeus. This man who was regarded as the disgusting traitor, Jesus was honoring him, the first step in that honor. He was transforming Zacchaeus' shame into honor. And I don't know what you're struggling with in your life. I don't know what kind of shame is lurking beneath that nobody knows about. Jesus is able to transform that shame into honor. And he's the only one who can. You see, we tend to avoid outsiders. I know I do. My first reaction sometimes. But Jesus pursues them. John Chrysostom, he was a pastor uh, in uh, uh, the fourth century in both Antioch and both Constantinople. And he, he may have been the greatest preacher in the history of the church. He preached in Greek. And every time he preached, uh, there were thousands of people that came to see him. Uh, he, he was a pastor in the city, but basically the entire city would come out to listen to him preach. They called him Golden Mouth. He was so good at preaching. And he said this, he was passionate about the subject of loving people who are on the margins. He said, Chrysostom stressed the importance of a proactive approach to hospitality. In commenting on Romans 12, 13, he noted that the phrase given to hospitality suggests not, not waiting for those that shall ask for it. Well, just ask, it'll get. No, but to run to them, be given to finding them. Who are the people around that are in need the people who are on the outskirts, on the margins, who don't have, who are they? And running to them. That's how John Chrysostom saw hospitality. And then when I was reading John Wesley, John Wesley had this to say, and this kind of cut into my heart. John Wesley said, one of the great reasons why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. And I read that and I was thinking, oh, He's talking to me. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is actively pursuing the people who are elsewhere, who are different, who are not able to come in. And so he goes out to them. This is the God that we serve. This is the Jesus. And he is pursuing you. Let's go back to verse five. Reread it again. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Have you ever muttered? I was muttered, muttering yesterday when my flight was late. Oh. Incompetent mechanics. God. No, I'm kidding. I have friends who are mechanics. I, I love them. But I don't know. I mutter sometimes. 
impatient. I look at somebody, something. This is what the crowd was doing. I'd really like to see myself in Zacchaeus, and I often see myself in the crowd instead. Zacchaeus was going through a process of of repentance. And and Gary Brashears, he's the chair of the theology department at Western Seminary. He says that repentance is fundamentally a change of allegiance where I, my allegiance was to one thing and now I'm changing it and giving it to Jesus completely, wholeheartedly, unabashedly and unreservedly to Jesus and Jesus alone. That is repentance. And it doesn't matter what the other thing is. If the other thing is good or bad or whatever, the, the, the problem with it is that it's not Jesus. So, so if my allegiance is to something else, whether it's my own personal wealth or my career or, or whatever that happens to be, it could be my country, it could be any of these things. If that's over and above allegiance, my allegiance to Jesus then that is an idol and that becomes idolatry. And that thing that may have been a good thing, it may still be a good thing, becomes something that has a nefarious impact on my life. And so Zacchaeus, what he's doing, we see him making this allegiance switch. He, his allegiance had been to his own wealth, to whatever led him to work for the Romans, to Jesus and to Jesus alone. And then we ask ourselves, Why did Jesus invite himself to Zacchaeus' house? Like, seriously, isn't that a little presumptuous? Because, you know, it's just not, it isn't just Jesus. It's like all of his disciples and all of his entourage and all of these people. So I'm just imagining, I'm just, so, sir, in the very back with the blue shirt and along the wall, could I ask what your first name is? Yes. Larry? So, Larry? I'm coming to your house for lunch. Everybody, we're going to Larry's. Potato salad for everybody. I hope you got enough. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. I didn't want to embarrass you. I appreciate playing along. That's what Jesus just did, right? He did that. And it wasn't just, it was a big deal. But why? So Jesus, when he called out Zacchaeus, in his name, he was bestowing honor. But, but the issue of honor and hospitality in the Middle East, in the Arab world, is completely the opposite of what we experience here. So what, here, when we invite people to our house, and this is all subconscious, and we're talking about anthropology, and I'm reading books on this, you know, and things like that. So it's not conscious. But generally what happens is when I invite somebody to my house here, I am honoring the guest because I'm working hard to clean the house and make the meal and, you know, set all of these things in flower. And so I'm just showing them, I'm, I'm honoring them by my invitation. That's not true in the Middle East, in the Arab world. And so you ask the question, you know, why is it that the Arab world is so extravagantly hospitable? If you go to the Middle East and you get away from some of the tourist areas, 
I mean, you're going to be invited to house after house and, and these huge spreads of food and, and spend time with out people for hours and, and them and their cousins and their aunts and their uncles and their neighbors. And it's this huge deal again and again and again. You're like, man, these people are crazy about hospitality. Like, what is up with this? And then you realize that, oh, it's because in the Arab world, the, the, they're not honoring the guest it's that when you show up at their house, you're bestowing honor on them. It's a really hard thing to get around in my mind, but they realize that it's almost a competition. Like, I want more honor for my house and for my family. So if I could just somehow get Dan to come over to eat, oh man, we're going to be honored. This is going to be great. And so all of the work that I do is, is, is a little selfish because I'm actually bringing honor to my house and my family is what I'm doing. And so what Jesus did when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, and I'm going to your house today, he's saying all of my honor, I'm bringing it to your house and I am gonna create an honorable place at your house. And then we start to realize why everybody, why everybody was so angry. They're like, wait a second. I have been working really hard to follow all the rules and do everything the way it should be. And then Jesus takes all of his honor. He thinks he can take it over to this disgusting traitor's house. So he gets all the honor and I don't get any honor. Muttering. And then we begin to realize like the story of the, the two brothers, the prodigal son. The younger brother comes back and the older brother, what's his response? Why are you honoring him? He ruined everything. And he comes back and your response is to honor him? Why don't you honor me? I deserve honor. He doesn't. It's the exact same thing happening here with the crowd. Zacchaeus, he doesn't deserve anything. I deserve the honor. And then we realize, you know what? While I tend to mutter about rejects, Jesus honors them. So M, he's on the streets and then there is a Christian family that they invite him in. They invite him around their table. He begins eating with them, living with them. They protect him. They take him to school. And, and he becomes a part of their family. And he begins to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for his family, his brothers, his sisters, his parents, his aunts, his uncles. He's praying for them and he's living in this safe place with this Christian family. He had been invited to the table. It was a family that had made the decision that we are going to follow Jesus. And one of the, the things that it means is that we're going to open our table and build a bigger table for those in need. And this young boy who's 12 years old, man, well, we're going to protect him. We're going to be with him. We're, he's, he, can be, he can stay with us for the rest of his life. And that's what he did his entire childhood. 
It's interesting, John Chrysostom, a couple of things about him. He, he urged his parishioners to make a guest chamber in their own houses, a place set apart for Christ. It's interesting because he didn't say set apart for guests. He said set apart for Christ. And then as guests enter, we don't know which of those guests is Christ coming. So, so we're setting it up for Christ, a place within to, to which to welcome the maimed, the beggars, and the homeless. He made another comment also, which is really interesting, where, where he saw a lot of people would have the objection saying, well, my church, we're doing a lot of things, you know, and, and, and that's great. So as long as my church is helping the community, I mean, do I really have to help? And, and Chrysostom's response is, well, the church prays a lot. Like, do you say, well, they pray a lot. Do I really have to? He's like, no. It's part of the privilege of, of being a disciple of Jesus is, is you pray and interact with God and every once in a while you get to welcome Jesus to your home. Just throw, uh, I'd like to throw a, a couple of, a few principles uh, that I, I was able to take out of the book by uh, Christine Pohl about this concept of um, hospitality. And just to say, uh, Hospitality, biblical hospitality, and inviting strangers to your house and, and outsiders and these kinds of things, it can get pretty scary. And I know a lot of you are kind of sitting there, kind of a little off balance right now. Maybe your fist half clenched, but un, you know, behind the chair, so I can't see it. You're like, Rob, you're kind of messing with me. Um, well, well, first of all, hospitality, what we see as we read and study throughout Scripture and history, it's kind of like learning to drive a car. You have to learn it one step at a time. And how do you do it safely? How do you do it well? When do you hit your brakes? And those kinds of things. It's something because we want to do it in a healthy, safe, secure manner. But we do want to be involved in it and grow in it as we go. Just for instance, I mean, driving a car with my kids, uh, the way I don't teach them is driving down the freeway at 70 miles an hour and say, here, Caleb, hop over, quick. Oh, the gas is the right-hand one. Like, that's, that's not what we do. No, we start with steps. We start with small. We, 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 we learn, we talk, we invite them, people over, we, we, and, and, and we grow in this concept. So here are, here are a few principles from her book. First of all, a life of hospitality begins with worship, worshiping of God and entering into who he is uh, and, and why he, his hospitality towards us. Number two, the church is an ideal initial filter. So as you meet people in need, a lot of times, instead of inviting them right away and saying, come and stay at our house for the next 20 years, like maybe a better way to do that would say, oh, here's somebody in need. Here, come to my church, meet with my pastor, meet with a couple of people. Let's, uh, we want to help you with this need and, and realize that, man, I don't have any idea how to help this person, but, but maybe we can work together and then learn and grow. Uh, and, and the church is kind of an initial filter in that sense. Since number three, begin in public spaces, churches, parks, schools, to interact with people who are different, uh, people who, who are uncomfortable with, people who we're not sure how to interact with publicly. Number four, uh, long-term hospitality is only possible with an engaged network of people. One family or one person, we, we just can't do it. We burn ourselves out unless we have other people who are coming alongside and, and we're working together in synergy with people who have the same passion. Number five, um, partner with local professionals, agencies, and support groups as we're facing all kinds of challenges. We need help. We need wisdom. We need, as we're interacting with people on the margins, and that's a, that's a good thing. God has gifted us with people who have more experience and, and expertise and, and knowledge than we do. Number six, 
uh, commit to a stable job, home, and life so that we can invite people in, so that, uh, so that as we, we have stability in these areas, then we have more margin to actually help and love people. And that's one of the things that we in Quebec, we're, we're, we would love to, to see more long-term stability to be more involved in this as time goes on. Number seven, Practice physical and spiritual renewal because as we're investing in people, it definitely does take something out of us. And so we need to have routines that are constantly filling us, you know, as we're spending time in scripture and with people and, and hiking and learning how, what God does to refresh us and to renew us so that we don't burn out. And 20 years from now, we can say this is joyful and this is a great thing. Uh, number eight, it's not about having a beautiful home but making people feel included and valued and safe. And that's so you could say, man, my home's just not beautiful enough for this. That's not the issue. The issue is to love people where they are, value them, uh, and, and, and have a place that's safe. Number nine, expect God to intervene in surprising ways. He does and he will. And number 10, you could say, I don't, I don't know if I could do a lot. <laughs> well, take small steps. Because the same God who multiplied the loaves and fishes will multiply our small efforts too. Just like this family who took in this 12-year-old boy. I mean, that's kind of a big thing, but at the same time, it's, it's not like change the world kind of thing. You know, in a, in a, in a large sense, it's, it's, it's loving a boy where he is. That's, it's what they could do at the moment. And they were willing to open their doors to that. And that was a great, great thing. Let's go, go to, back to our text in verse 8 as we end up, finish up the text. So, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I now give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. First of all, he stood up. This is the same word used of the tax collector a couple of chapters earlier when there was a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Then he stood up and he beat his chest. He said, God, forgive me, a sinner. Same word. Zacchaeus is standing up and basically publicly repenting in front of everybody. Then he talks about giving half of his possessions to the poor. Radical changes now, not later, saying, no, now Jesus is my king. Jesus, you have everything of mine. It all belongs to you. Now, the question also could be, um, do I have to give away half of my stuff in order to follow Jesus? Am I required to do that? And, and there are people all over the place that they, they don't. Because money in and itself is not a bad thing. However, if it's a big struggle, the answer might be yes. And what do we see? We see that the rich young ruler was stuck on his money. And then Zacchaeus was unstuck so that he could cling to Jesus. And that's the point, isn't it? Whatever that thing is in my life that I'm stuck to, Jesus wants us to unstick us so that we can cling and receive life from him. That's the fundamental issue here. 
Because while I tend to justify my choices, Jesus died to save the lost. And the fear is that we could be like the, the lawyer uh, earlier uh, who he said, you know, to justify himself, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Man, I don't want to be like the lawyer to justify myself. And Zacchaeus is just, is just saying, Jesus, it's all yours. I'm a sinner. It's all yours now. And what we see is that Zacchaeus was not only free from the burden of his wealth, but he was freed from being a burden. Many, 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 many poor people and families and children and, and single women in Jericho, their lives were transformed because of what Zacchaeus did right here and now when he met Jesus. The ramifications of that are hard to estimate. And here's the reality. Jesus transforms me through the cross and his spirit. When I was vulnerable, Jesus saw me. When I was an outsider, Jesus pursued me. When I was a reject, Jesus honored me. When I was lost, Jesus died to seek and save me. And now, after we meet Jesus and he transforms us, he fills us with his spirit. Because the reality is we are not able to live out biblical hospitality, to love those different from us in our own strength. We can't do it. It goes against the grain. And so the reality is this, is now through the power of his spirit in me, Jesus sees the vulnerable through my eyes. Jesus pursued the, pursues the outsiders through my feet. Jesus honors the rejects through my words. And Jesus welcomes the lost around my table. So here's the story with M, who had been invited into this family. He grew up. And over the years, over the decades, over about 30 years, every single one of his family members, his, his brothers, sisters, parents, um, 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 aunts and uncles, everybody but one has given their allegiance to Jesus. And when I, I talked to him about this a couple of weeks ago, he said he, he didn't dwell on the bitterness of being rejected by his family. He said, no, you know what happened? Is that through that process, God taught me to pray like I never knew was possible. And God has transformed people throughout. But even more than that, we see this transformation bleeding into other areas of his life. He went to Bible school. He eventually got his PhD. And he eventually started various missiological programs in schools in the French-speaking world. That he started a, a university uh, that was gospel-centered to train people uh, who, how to be gospel-centered in every aspect of society. He started a missiological network throughout the French-speaking world. M's impact in the world is just almost unfathomable how God has used this man over the last 30 years. But the family that 
They welcomed him in. They, they didn't know that. They had no idea that would happen. All they knew is there was a 12-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy who was in need. We don't know who we are welcoming to our table, but God does. And this is not an obligation. You know, hospitality is not like something, oh, I've got to do it. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. Because when we invite the vulnerable, the outsiders, the rejects, the lost to our table, we are unleashing the power of the Spirit in ways that we never dreamed was possible. And that's why... Brother Jeremiah, he says, we always treat guests as angels, just in case. (laughs) And as we practice this, we will be transformed. Us, our families, our communities, our church, our cities, in ways we never thought possible. And now what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is for us. And you know who we are? We, we were the vulnerable, the outsiders, the rejects. We were the lost. And now we've been found by Jesus. Let's celebrate that together. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org/give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.